Happy and healthy new year and welcome to the NPM's uh, first podcast of 2024. Here to discuss major energy transition investment trends is uh, William Demos, head of Macquarie Asset Management, uh, Green Investments for the Americas. Uh, William, thanks for joining the program today. Thank you, John. Happy new year. Looking forward to uh, this podcast and the year ahead of us. Sounds good. So before we get to the Q&A, a quick recap, Man had a very busy energy transition investing year in 2023, capped off by $190 million commitment to sustainable aviation fuel producer Sky RNG, and also invested in GH2 derivative business Atlas Agro and energy capital provider Galway Sustainable Capital. Uh, last year, uh, Macquarie invested in more conventional renewable developers, uh, acquiring grid scale solar and storage developer Tree Oak Clean Energy and also investing in Galehead development. So with that in mind, uh, William, if you could maybe talk about some themes you expect to emerge in energy and energy transition investing in 2024. Sure, sure, John, happy to. Um, I guess I'll start off by saying that I don't anticipate the themes or the focus of uh, energy transition investing to differ meaningfully from 2023. I think 2023 was a pretty meaningful year uh, off the heels of the IRA and other uh, tailwinds. So um, a lot of the things that we were talking about in 2023, we'll still be talking about in 2024, but we'll just continue to advance sort of the, the actual, you know, um, investment cases and the the, the projects that are um, being developed and, and built um, in the various sectors within energy transition. But I, I can make some observations though. I, I do think well, I'll start with the boring and maybe the obvious, but, um, you know, the energy transition is going to be driven by, you know, mature technologies such as solar and wind. And I think in 2024, we're going to see a lot more solar. I, I know that's not super exciting, but um, I think with um, clarity around domestic manufacturing and energy community credits um, and those becoming more bankable with with visibility on what those mean. Um, it's really going to be a, a big impetus for, you know, a dramatic uh, advancement of, of solar being developed and built in at least in the United States. Um, I think at the same time, you'll see um, meaningful consolidation within the solar sector, um, primarily around, uh, you know, smaller developers with large and you know high quality development pipeline. We can talk about why I think that uh, is the case in a bit, but I, I do see a lot of activity in, in the solar sector, which um, frankly had a bit of a slowdown in the last one or two years, but I, I do, I am optimistic about that picking back up in 24. Um, I also think that, you know, people are really beginning to understand that transmission is a critical part of the energy transition. And there's gonna be continued focus on removing the, the permitting bottlenecks around that and sort of the, human capital bottlenecks around around you know uh, processing you know per permits and, and, and whatnot i think um while you know batteries are also important they're not going to be able to do everything and so you know if we're putting all this new clean power on the grid transmission is going to have to be a focus and you know while there's uh you know regulatory uh constraints and you know somewhat political constraints um i do think that it's going to the 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 industry is going to continue to sort of um, identify that as a as a as a bottleneck that needs to be relieved. Um, I also think that we'll continue to see the intersection between energy technology and infrastructure investing. 
Um, you know, over the last few years, many sort of infra tech or energy tech um, businesses raise you know tremendous amounts of capital that they've been presumably spending over the last couple of years. Um, not all of them will, would have spent it wisely, but many of them hopefully have. And you know, the result of that will be hopefully you know infrastructure projects or you know hybrid type projects that utilize their products or the technologies that um, can can help advance energy transition. I think. You know, particularly in areas like renewable fuels, carbon capture, battery storage, um, we'll see a lot of that, uh, the fruits of that uh, intersection and hybrid uh, investment strategy um, producing real, uh, real large infrastructure assets. Um, any particular uh, drivers of these trends? Well, I think you know, as I uh, mentioned, uh, the cons consolidation of solar, um, I think part of what's driving that is just, first of all, I think there's just too many developers uh, in, in the market right now. Well, it's a great thing that there's so much activity. There's, um, you know, there's real efficiency and scale. And I think um, as these smaller developers um, advance their, their pipeline and create, you know, attractive portfolios, they'll come up to a point where they can't actually continue to to fund their pipelines because they have either big interconnection deposits to put down or PPA deposits to put down. And it just becomes inefficient to sort of sell these um, projects kind of one-off. Um, and so the bigger platforms that have, um, you know, ready access to capital and are well capitalized today, there's going to be an opportunity to, I think, at attractive valuations sort of um, help ease the burden of some of these smaller developers um, who've done a great job advancing their their pipelines, but just can't take them any further. And so I think that will be um, an interesting consolidation activity, both, you know, at the project level and as well as maybe at the platform level. Um, you know, just generally solar um, uh, continuing to, to grow is, is, is going to be driven by um, sort of the, the return of the reduction in module pricing that um, we're observing in the market today. As many, many people know, there's um, been a lot of contributing factors over the last couple of years um, that have made solar supply chains challenging, particularly for U.S. projects, and uh, as a result, really drove up pricing in the market, uh, despite sort of a natural downward cost curve that, uh, you know, we should be experiencing. Um, so I think, you know, we're kind of seeing the the trend reverse, and there's a, you know, an oversupply, and so we're, we're observing module pricing coming back down to where we, we expected and hoped them to be. So that will spur a lot of additional um, development and construction of projects. Um, in addition to that, you know, one of the early sort of um, uh, benefactors of the IRA has actually been the domestic manufacturing sector. Um, there's been sort of $300 billion plus, I believe, of um, announced, you know, domestic manufacturing uh, projects. And so that will alleviate some of the supply chain issues as well. And we'll see if that um, uh, also alleviates, you know, for, adds further sort of um, reduction in, in, the, in the cost curve as well over the next 12 to 24 months. Um, I think in addition, um, we'll see a lot of um, increased focus from the industrial complex on, in, on decarbonization. Um, particularly as we get closer to 2030, it's now 2024. So 2030 is even closer than it was, you know, uh, two weeks ago. Um, but many of these corporate and industrial customers have made commitments to their shareholders and investors that they were going to be 
at some level of net zero by 2030. And as that comes uh, you know, closer and closer, a lot of these uh, companies will have to do something to, to ensure that they deliver on um, their commitments. And so um, that'll either be investing directly into projects or into, into businesses that um, are decarbonizing or you know, outright acquiring other platforms or clean platforms that they can incorporate into their business. I could take a question uh, related to uh, the solar uh, developer consolidation you alluded to earlier. Um, do you feel th there seems to be a lot of capital markets options out there today uh, between the, the public uh, banks, project finance banks, uh, private credit, uh, even investors? Um, do you think there's still going to be an issue in terms of uh, knowing when like smaller developers are going to feel the need to sell as opposed to seeking credit to extend the option? Do you feel like there's going to be more of a compression in terms of the bid ask spread, whereas there, there may not have been, you know, a year or two ago, just curious your thoughts on that. Um, with regards to private cre credit, if you, if you look at, you know, of course, I haven't seen every deal, and you, you all track many of them, so maybe you've got a better perspective. Is um, you know, I've I've experienced private credit still being kind of challenged to 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 in, to provide capital to these like true development stage businesses. I mean, there's still um, a lot of risk inherent in these businesses, and you know, by the time the private credit uh, investors assess the risk and and price those facilities, they look a lot like equity. So. Um, while there's been certainly is, there's situations where you know a developer may have a set of operating assets that can be a basis for sort of a, a, a well collateralized facility, um, you know I I still think some of the private credit um, investors are still hesitant to really truly provide um, you know purely development uh, type of loans, and so I so I think that is not going to be necessarily. A, a huge driver, there will be opportunity, but I, I, I still think that it will be driven by sort of more common equity, structured finance, pref equity type of um, investments, as well as the project finance markets, which are still pretty robust for assets of the of these types. Um, in terms of the bid ask, um, you know, I think T TBD I certainly was a slowdown in, in activity last uh, last year because of, you know, the you know, buyers uh, adjusting their discount rates and and sellers not not agreeing with that. Um, you know, a little bit too early to tell which direction you know and when interest rates uh, moderate. But you know, I think um, it'll be interesting to see if buyers also moderate their discount rates or if that's been a sort of a permanent um, increase in the market. So uh, I I think there's still a lot to flesh out there, and uh, I wouldn't want to predict at this point how that plays out. Okay, uh, switching gears, um, as I alluded to earlier, one of Macquarie's investments was in a GH2 derivative business, Atlas Agro. Uh, can you talk about um, this particular deal from an investment investing perspective and um, why this was uh, a jumping off point for you sorts in the GH2 uh, industry, if you will? Yeah, I'm happy to, to, to do that. I think before I get into the specifics of Atlas Agro. I'll give you some background in terms of how we how we um, were evaluating the hydrogen industry. You know, even before the IRA um, and, and what the IRA um, 
did in terms of advancing our uh, our, our interest in, in the green hydrogen sector. Um, we always thought that green hydrogen was going to be a, a critical component of the energy transition. We still believe it it, it, it is and will be. Um, just pre-IRA, we just, um, we found it very difficult for various reasons. Um, you know, the economics weren't really that attractive. Um, and we, we were struggling to find a way to invest in green hydrogen through a, an infrastructure lens, really, uh, as most hydrogen markets are quite commoditized and you don't typically find long-term fixed price contracts that us infrastructure investors love and, and chase um, in, in, in a commoditized sector like, you know, traditional hydrogen. So we were, we were not convinced there was going to be a near-term opportunity for us to invest in just hydrogen production. It, it was just hard for us to make that work. What we did realize, though, was that there seemed to be a strong demand sink from end cu customers for derivatives of green hydrogen, such as ammonia, fertilizer, methanol, etc. We found that those products consisted of the end users of those products consisted of companies who needed to find a way to decarbonize their businesses and were more willing to consider longer term contracts to ensure access to those products. So long as the price they were paying was on par or below the fossil fuel based equivalent product. That they're that they're currently purchasing, but that was still really challenging without the IRA. So we didn't really we didn't really see a compelling offer offering to, you know, the ultimate end users of these derivative products because it was just untenably expensive compared to what they were already doing. Um, but following the IRA and the credits being provided to green hydrogen, we we thought that green fertilizer and some of these derivative products would be more um, more appealing. Um, uh, and, and we began, to, and it in fact began to look much more attractive, and could accomplish. And with the IRA and the credits that were being provided, we saw models and economic uh, analyses that showed that you know you could create this green product at par with the incumbent product, which we believe is critical to our investment mandate. We 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 do not want to underwrite to a green premium typically. Um, and it happened to be at that point, you know, we were introduced to Atlas Agro, which is actually a Swiss-based uh, uh, platform, um, but developing projects globally, uh, green fertilizer projects globally. Um, and their flagship product happened to be here in, in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State. Um, they were looking for a capital partner. Um, and given the management team, which is uh, consists of really, really experienced uh uh, team members from the fertilizer industry, um, and that was a critical part of our of our analysis. We we didn't um, see many uh, hydrogen companies with such a strong management team that had sort of true um, background in what they're creating, um, and so that really compelled us and excited us to invest in that business, help them develop their global pipeline, uh, which, as I said, starts here in the U.S., but they are also actively um, developing products projects in other markets such as Brazil. Um, so getting into the uh, IRA, um, they did uh, finally, after much uh, drama, introduce uh, Section 45B guidance uh, shortly before the new year. Um, and I guess uh, there were some leaks about this, but the main criticism had been um, the requirement that developers shift to hourly matching in 2028 from an annual matching prior 
and probably some of the criticism coming from developers saying, you know, we're not going to be ready until 2028 at the earliest. So this really just applies to us. But regardless, um, you know, uh, you know, given us the broad strokes, uh, William, maybe give us some of your observations about uh, the guidance and, you know, whether it's going to be a, a meaningful uh, driver for uh, GH2 development. And, um, you know, if you want to adjust your views on hourly matching, fine, but just give us a broader overview to start off with. Yeah, look, I would say, generally speaking, having any guidance and having any support for the green hydrogen sector in the United States is a positive, right? Um, I know that um, there were some elements of the guidance that came out that were unexpected, um, but I do still believe fundamentally this is a, uh, a great opportunity for us to establish the green hydrogen sector here in the United States. So I, I don't think there's any sort of um, long term, actually, I think long term, this is a, a really positive development for the sector. Um, as you alluded to, I do think that, um, you know, the acceleration or the establishment of the green hydrogen you know, industry here in the United States, if the um, guidance remains as is, it, it will require some adjustments that may, you know, delay some business plans or projects a year or two longer as people adapt to things that they weren't expecting they had to think about before. And you're referring to that. Um, with the hourly matching, which is one component, but also the additionality component, as well as the deliver deliverability component, which requires um, the, the clean power source to be located in, in, in the same region as, as the, uh, the hydrogen project. So, you know, some could say that they um, foresaw that being part of the guidance, um, given that that's also was a meaningful part of the guidance in Europe. But, um, you know, I, I think people were uh, maybe expecting something slightly different. But at the end of the day, I think what this guidance is really trying to achieve, in my opinion, is the introduction of a just and fair system in order to enable the sector to have the biggest impact in the long run. This uh, this is the right way to think about creating a sustainable and impactful green hydrogen industry. It, uh, it may sacrifice some very near-term opportunity or may delay some very near-term opportunity, but ultimately, I think it will ensure that the sector will be set up for true success. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about energy storage a little bit. Um, you know, it's funny, people keep talking to me about it being still nascent. And I'm kind of like, well, man, we feel like we've covered a lot of deals in the past few years in energy storage, and like actual lemonade and like platforms being bought and sold and storage projects being bought and sold. And uh, I'm like, well, people do have conviction here, you know, in different markets. But, um, you know, I, I guess still in broad strokes, wanted to get your sense on, um, you know, storage, battery energy storage as an investment opportunity and, and what needs to be done to make it, um, you know, more economically feasible for investors at this point. Yeah, no, look, I think you're right that there has been activity in the sector, battery storage sector. I think it's mostly been around sort of development assets and, and sort of, you know, sort of construction ready assets, et cetera. I, I actually, there haven't been that many big platform deals. There's been, you, you no, a there's been a few versus many. Agreed. Yeah, it, exactly. So, um, so there's still, I'd still say it's fairly early days. Um, there's still, I, I think the challenge um, or what, 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 um, it's challenging for investors within the sector is 
fundamentally, the purpose of a battery storage system, a grid-tied battery storage system, is actually to maximize the value of that investment. It should be largely merchant, or it should be um, being it should be operated by someone who has the ability to monetize the revenue streams, sort of as they see fit, which sort of goes directly against um, at least infrastructure investors' um, uh, ma mandates or, or their historical competency. So I think while people realize these are critical assets in the, in, in, in the, in the system, uh, just the, the revenue profile still um, isn't matching with uh, what a lot of investors are looking to, to achieve. And so um, I think that's been a struggle. Um, I do believe, however, that um, you know, more creative, creative and sophisticated investors can find a way to have a healthy balance in terms of, you know, getting sort of that high quality contracted revenues and getting visibility on your, your return profile, but also um, backing management teams, creating systems that are able to sort of monetize the emerging components in a, uh, in a, in a, in a way that's mindful to our, our risk profiles. And I think, you know, there's only a handful of those uh, investors, I would say, including ourselves that um, I believe have the right teams and the right perspective and, and track record to to um, to to make those those decisions and assess those risks, but I I think more of the conservative, more of the traditional infrastructure investors still are struggling to see this as a investable asset class for their uh, for their funds just because of the reasons I just described to you. That being said, I I I, I do believe that it's you know the energy transition will not. Um, will not proceed without um, heavy investment in battery and battery storage uh, in the grid. So I, d I do believe people are um, see that opportunity in the addressable market and um, are trying to figure it out. And we're also being helped by sort of um, you know banks and, and trading entities that are you know creating sort of creative um, and uh, innovative structures that allow these projects to be monetized in a more sort of traditional infrastructure way. Um, and those are becoming increasingly attractive in terms of the economics. And so I think, you know, a little bit of innovation in the sector and a, a little bit of um, uh, a little bit of assessing a new way to invest for traditional in infrastructure investors will, you know, will advance the sector. And will I, I do think in the next two, three, four years, you're going to see a real, um, a real increase in these projects. Uh, being deployed. Historically, they've been really just deployed in California and ERCOT. I think there are a lot of um, markets that are just on the cusp of sort of um, having their breakout in terms of battery storage. So stay tuned. Uh, to conclude, uh, any new areas of energy transition you guys are currently evaluating? Um, yeah, so look, we've made a couple of um, interesting investments, not just here in the US, but globally that um, you know, would show you some of the different ideas that we have. We last year also we made investment in a in a in a battery manufacturing uh, joint venture called Vercor. It's out of Paris. Um, uh, battery manufacturing doesn't um, immediately jump out as infrastructure like investments. However, in this particular case, and the 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 following investments that we're interested in looking at around manufacturing, there was a very much an infrastructure like component to the revenue. And so um, we got comfortable with it from that perspective. And so uh, we're seeing more opportunities that kind of mimic that profile. So we're keeping 
an eye on that here in the Americas. Um, we also made an investment in a uh, in a, a metal, uh, an AI enabled metals uh, sorting technology called Sorterra. Mm -hmm. So that that is you know a circular economy uh, focused investment. They also not only develop the technology, but they also um, uh, develop and build the the actual facilities where uh, the, the sorting happens. And so we, we really like that investment because it's you know it's it's investing in a enabling technology, but also um, creating infrastructure like opportunities for us. So uh, I think that's an example of sort of hybrid type investments that um, we're also en enabled to pursue. And um, I think there's going to be um, a lot of activity around that looks like that within the circular economy sector. And then, you know, I think they're going back to battery storage. Um, people forget that there are other storage technologies. Uh, one one area that I am uh, have uh, background in and, and investment experience in and um, which is um, sort of having its second life or soon to have a second life is pump storage hydro. I think, um, you know, that is um, kind of the, the most proven and tried and true um, storage technology that uh, that exists today. Incredibly hard to develop and, and, and build uh, new new facilities. So that's um, been a challenge, but it is um, probably the the most uh, efficient way to today available today to address longer term uh, duration opportunities. Um, obviously you can't build them everywhere so it will be limited in terms of its its market but I, we do think that pump storage will have a very impactful role to play in the energy transition. Yeah, I was about to ask a follow-up about uh, geography here. Are there any areas of the country you think might be more um more open to or or where you could develop hydro, which hasn't or pump storage hydro where, where it hasn't yet. Yeah, we're seeing Pacific Northwest uh sure most active. Um so you know particularly you know there's the coal strip transmission um and and uh, the coal the shutdown of coal plants in 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 that area plus you know states that have um that have adequate land and also have um committed to going 100% renewables um by some period of time we think those markets are most attractive for for that um that being said there's still very limited um number of you know high quality sites that um you can build pump storage on so it's again like i said it's going the the individual projects are are large and and we like that but the overall addressable market is not going to be um it's not it probably won't scale as as quickly as some of the more distributed or smaller scale storage opportunities. Great. Well, thanks for that. That's about all the, all the time we have today. Uh, William, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. And uh, John, thanks for the time. Please tune in next time. Uh, Burke out.